Hey mate, 40 here. It's uh, about 2 p.m. Thursday afternoon, December 15th, hanging out in the Botanic Gardens in Brisbane, Australia. I've got uh, a 10 hour layover at the Brisbane airport. So, made my way to the Central Business District. So, the Botanic Gardens here in the Central Business District. And I'm listening to a New Yorker article on the strongman leader of Ethiopia who proclaims that diversity is their strength. At the same time, countries embroiled in a nasty genocidal civil war. And on top of it all, he worries about the United States' stability and democracy. Dades insisted that he was still seeking unity. The PM believes our strength lies in our diversity, one told me. But as the conflict grew more intense, Abi began referring to TPLF members as the cancer of Ethiopia. And right. So it's one thing to proclaim, you know, pious-sounding phrases, but when the rubber hits the road, you may very well say something considerably harsher. Because when the situation changes, you know, your rhetoric is likely to change as well. And as devils and weeds. Even though he made a show of distinguishing between the TPLF and ordinary Tigrayans, the weeds and the wheat, the country's ethnic factions understood that the constraints on conflict were gone. With the Amhara and the Tigrayans continued to fight over territory, Oromo nationalist groups were increasingly restive. This summer, militias in the countryside carried... So Ethiopia is composed of all sorts of different religions and different tribes. Like Ethiopia is not... A stable state. It's hard to see how it will ever become a stable state. At a spate of massacres, in the first, in mid-June, hundreds of ethnic Amhara civilians were killed in Aromia. Among the victims were women and children who were shot or burned alive. When I raised the slaughter with a bee, he brushed aside the news. He said that there were always people up to mischief in the countryside and that he knew how to deal with them. When a second massacre took place, a few weeks later, the brutality became harder to ignore. Abi blamed the violence on a militia called the Oromo Liberation Army, which was allied with the TPLF. But the OLA denied involvement, saying that the killings had been carried out by government-allied militias. So why do people murder each other in large numbers? Because of pressing, urgent conflicts of interest. Right? Different groups have different interests, and that divergence becomes a matter of life and death and lives become sacrificed. It's not because of misinformation or hate speech. The, the misinformation, the hate speech, is often a product of these brutal conflicts of interest become matters of life and death. While soldiers from the Ethiopian army stood by, ascertaining the truth was impossible because the government had restricted access to the areas. There were few international media outlets in Ethiopia. Correspondents from The Economist and The Times, among others, had been expelled. Oh, and if only we had the international media there, then we could have ascertained the truth. Then we would have found out what was really going on. I mean, because think of the bang-up job that the news media did during Joseph Stalin's reign, when Joseph Stalin was starving to death millions of his own citizens and much of the media actively you know, covered it up because uh, Joseph Stalin and Soviet communism, they were the future. After the second massacre, Abiy appeared in parliament 
where legislators questioned him. When is your government going to stop this? One demanded. Why is it difficult for you to hold those responsible accountable? Abi was evasive. Maybe it's difficult to hold those accountable. Those responsible accountable because there's not a long tradition of the rule of law in Ethiopia. Right? A people's government tends to reflect the predilections of the people. Terrorists are operating all over the world, he said, reeling off statistics of recent killings in the United States. Without stopping their children dying in their cities, they are talking about our agenda. He said that he was hearing a lot of prescriptive solutions from people and added loftily, I should point out that the government has more information than the general public. Abit yeah, that's what people who get criticized and who have power are always saying, ah, I know more than you do. I've got more information than you have. All right. If you knew as much as I did, then then you'd understand that uh, what I did was right. And that's like the oldest line in the book. Began a long soliloquy praising Ethiopia's military history and its moral traditions. We still respect our elders and love our families, but they only want to talk about poverty, killings. Working himself into a rant, he suggested that he was surrounded by antagonists held at bay by his security forces. You don't see the terrorists shooting at this house because... Yeah, it's not his fault. He didn't do nothing. He's not responsible. We have protected it, he said. There are those who buy people within our structures. We are working hard to identify them. And when he says we protect this house, he's meaning to say that uh, I can withdraw your protection at any time and you might get slaughtered, so be grateful to me. We've arrested 5,000 people. This is not just based on hearsay. This is based on information. It was as if a bee were speaking not to his peers, but to his opposition. What we want to tell our enemies is that the government of Ethiopia believes in this country's resilience and in reform, and if necessary, will make sacrifices, he said. This country cannot be destroyed. During my time... Is that right? Is, is Ethiopia exactly the, the kind of country that can't be destroyed? And uh, what exactly counts as a destroyed country? Because uh, Ethiopia seemed to have been pretty pulverized over the past few decades. Remember in 1985, people going house to house, raising money to try to you know, save Ethiopia starving. Weren't there major rock concerts to raise money for Ethiopia's starving masses? In Ethiopia. I stayed at the Hilton, near Abiy's palace. There are Ethiopian restaurants in L.A. It's uh, very economical to run an Ethiopian restaurant. All you have to serve is sand. The hotel is owned by the government, and the employees evidently knew that I was an official guest. The doorman saluted whenever I came and went. The local people I spoke with seemed conscious that they, too, were under scrutiny. Any criticism of the government was couched in wary hypotheticals. Some might say that things have gone off track. There were a few exceptions. A cab driver exploded with outrage when I told him that I was headed to the National Human Rights Commission, which he insisted had become a government propaganda outlet. A young woman I met trembled with... Aren't all human rights commissions government propaganda outlets? Given that human rights is the refuge of lefties who've given up on politics but still want to have a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. 
they can embrace an exciting cause that doesn't make any concrete difference in the real world. So in the real world, human rights can only be protected by nation states, but at least you feel righteous, at least you feel like you're doing something, at least you feel like you have switched from the realm of the political to the realm of the moral, right? Human rights is uh, the refuge of burned out lefties who've consistently failed at real world politics, but still want the excitement and the adrenaline rush. Anxiety as she described living in Addis, she was part Tigrayan, she explained, and had changed her name to disguise her ethnicity. During the TPLF's offensives, Abiy's government had placed Tigrayans in internment camps, many of them makeshift facilities in schools and municipal buildings. She avoided armed security men in the streets for fear that she'd be asked for ID and taken away. Even non-Tigrayan residents had reason to be concerned about surveillance. Under the TPLF-led government, Abiy had helped found what is now called the Information Network Security Administration. Look, it's really hard to maintain and protect civil human rights when you're engaged in a civil war. Had the United States significantly reduced its constitutional rights afforded to its citizens at times of war, all nations reduce rights during a time of war, during a time of an emergency, during a time of a pandemic, right? Nations consistently act in a dictatorial fashion in the face of a real emergency, a threatened emergency, or a made-up emergency, or a purported emergency, right? All democracies have mechanisms for essentially abrogating any and all human rights during time of emergency. So you are looking live at the Botanic Gardens in the central business district of Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. Which oversaw cybersecurity in a country where the state tightly restricted life online. Feltman, the former U.S. Special Envoy, told me, everyone knows that in Ethiopia, the walls have ears. When I visited the Ethiopian Artificial Intelligence Institute, the director showed me the country's first domestically built robot. A large female-looking figure wearing a traditional dress, it rolled out on wheels and... wonder how long Ethiopia until Ethiopia or some other African nation puts a man on the moon. ...delivered a short speech of welcome. It was hard to concentrate on the technology. At the back of the room, a wall-sized screen displayed an image of my own face pulled from photographs online. The director explained that the center was involved in everything from language and mining to national security. It was also working on a voice identification system, important for intelligence, for identifying terrorists trying to conceal their identities. A command center had been established at the federal police headquarters, led by Abiy's former chief of intelligence, where monitors showed live feeds from cameras at intersections around the city. Since we built it, traffic crimes have gone down, the director said. Couldn't they just import all this from China? I mean, China's not exactly known for quality control, but I suspect that the Chinese have more effective systems for suppressing their populations than uh, the Ethiopians are able to come up with on their own. Of course, it was also useful for intelligence and crowd control. If people are gathering, we see it. Ethiopia's main partner in the project was the UAE, which maintains one of the world's most aggressive systems of citizen surveillance. At the Information Network Security Administration. So the chat says that gardens 
and landscapes and botanical gardens in particular are all gay. Well, this is what's happened with the homosexual rights revolution. Like all sorts of wholesome endeavors that, you know, blokes could do together. Like blokes could drive out, you know, into nature to see flowers blooming, right? That used to be perfectly acceptable. Blokes could dress nicely. They could enjoy theater. No one would accuse them of being homosexual. But with the explosion in homosexual activism and homosexual rights, now all sorts of wholesome, manly endeavors largely undertaken by heterosexuals are now considered gay. There's nothing gay about parks, landscapes, botanical gardens, driving out into the desert to see flowers in bloom. Right? Not gay. Right? Getting married is not gay. But with the explosion in gay activism, gay movements, LGBTQ awareness, all sorts of wholesome, manly, heterosexual activities are now dismissed as gay. Men, perhaps you know, having increased problems with you know, developing and maintaining friendships with other blokes, in part because they don't want to do things that are considered gay. Right? We didn't used to have this problem where appreciating the finer things of life was gay. That's a new and unfortunate development. The director, a burly man named Shumati Gizaw, showed me an Ethiopian-made drone equipped with a fearsome gun. Good for Really? Is this really Ethiopian designed and made? Or is it just stolen from the Chinese? Agriculture, but it can also have a military use, he said. As Shumati walked me through the facility, he kept up a running commentary about how the TPLF had ruined Ethiopia through corruption and expansionist tendencies. They deliberately destroyed our social fabric, built up over millennia, making everyone suspicious of one another. There's 40 schwitz with his shore buddies. No, I don't. A lot of my shore buddies do go schwitzing together, but they don't invite 40. I've never been invited to go schwitzing. It's, uh, it's one part of the Jewish journey I have yet to participate in. Maybe there, there are some secrets in, in Jewish life that are being denied me that you know, only get revealed during schwitzing. He said. And schwitzing, in case anyone realize, doesn't realize, it's uh, where you sweat. You get together in a steam room and you sweat. They are the original troublemakers. We are unlucky, brother. In April, the U.S. State Department released a dire statement on the ongoing siege in Tigray. We note with the utmost alarm that thousands of Ethiopians of Tigrayan ethnicity reportedly continue to be detained arbitrarily in life-threatening conditions. And be insisted that the Americans had it all wrong. I am a real peacemaker, he said. I love peace. But the outsiders, they don't understand what happened to us. Throughout Ethiopia... Abiy's allies contended that the TPLF, the junta, had hoodwinked the West into believing that Tigrayans were the real victims of the conflict. They argued that the TPLF had victimized the Ethiopian people for 27 years and was plotting to retake control of the country. In early July, I flew to the Afar region. Okay, I think that's about as much as I want to take on the Ethiopian conflict. But uh, there was another story that I wanted to explore.
it's about the use of aromatherapy, right, to overcome long COVID. I would have thought narrative therapy would have done the trick. Long COVID sufferers. Long COVID patients are flocking to a Texas clinic to treat smell disorders. Some doctors doubt the treatment. Patients are flocking to a pain clinic in Bryan that offers a treatment purported to be able to restore their sense of smell. Well, people who flock to this clinic get individual attention. They get health care that is bespoke, meaning modeled on their individual personality. Sometimes people just need a little attention, a little tender loving care. It doesn't have to be objectively double-blind, factually peer-reviewed, you know, proven to have better than a placebo effect. You can simply give many people the placebo effect, they will receive considerable benefit. Post-COVID, but some doctors express doubts about the remedy. Written by Courtney Run for Texas Monthly. Narrated by Susie Myers-Jackson. Well, most psychiatric drugs have at best placebo benefits, but we still prescribe and sell billions and billions of them. Hard-hitting, investigating journal question there, Glib, my boy. It's a good question. No one's ever asked me to go schwitzing. Is there something wrong with me? On a chilly Sunday in March 2021, Sam Arscott walked into her home in Utica, New York, expecting the familiar scent of pot roast that had been simmering in a slow cooker all day. Instead, when she entered her kitchen, a waft of floral-scented garbage overwhelmed her senses. A professional caterer, Arscott wondered if she had accidentally cooked spoiled meat and called in her husband to take a whiff. He was confused. The roast smelled fine. She suffered through the nauseating smell for the duration of the dinner, unable to eat. That evening, as Arscott went to bed, the smell of cigarettes hung in the air. But when she checked outside her house, no one was smoking in the street. Over the ensuing days, more places and things... It's uh, sad, it seems, that uh, women with a lot of mental health problems, including anxiety and depression, are particularly susceptible to long COVID. I, I wonder why that is. It's like with chronic fatigue syndrome, most uh, sufferers are, are women. Uh, fibromyalgia, most sufferers are women. Uh, you know, women are much more likely to go to the doctor, go to the doctor regularly. I think women are more in touch with their bodies, with their emotions. They're more likely to give vent to their disturbed feelings. Smelled foul. A strong chemical odor overrode the normal scent of her body wash. Cafes and restaurants smelled like rotting garlic. The litany of rancid scents in the grocery store made it difficult to even enter. Soon, Arscott could no longer operate her catering business. The short list of foods that didn't make her ill included broccoli, grilled chicken, salmon, and green grapes, but not red. Unable to work directly with most foods, she pivoted her business and began offering clients nutrition advice rather than making them meals. All the while, Arscott was uncertain as to what was causing her condition. A bout of COVID-19 the previous December had left her briefly without any sense of smell, but she hadn't read about distortion of odors as a symptom of the virus. 
Eventually, Arscott's internet research led her to discover parosmia, a condition whereby common odors smell rancid, a disorder that... So I often find myself you know, discovering new disorders that I suffer from. So like one that I found a few years ago and I announced to my brother, I found a new mental you know, health problem I've got. Uh, it was maladaptive daydreaming. It's actually a pretty serious malady, guys. It's, it's worse than cancer. This to affect roughly 4% of adults. Parosmia is a widely reported symptom of long COVID. In my senior year in high school, I got smashed in the face with a basketball. I was walking across basketball court and some basketball came sailing out of nowhere. And uh, ever since then, I haven't really had much of a sense of smell. Is this the American conservative article on long COVID? No. There's a Wall Street Journal article on long COVID that was highly skeptical, said that uh, respiratory illnesses uh, tend to take a while to recover from, but uh, people who suffer from long COVID most likely have some kind of underlying mental health, depression, anxiety issue. The catch-all term for a variety of health problems present in many patients long after their infection from the coronavirus has cleared. Arscott's primary care doctor dismissed her concerns and her research about parosmia, which remained little understood by the medical community early. So I'm seeing articles all the time about how women's pain is dismissed, how doctors are insensitive, insensitive to women's pain, that they, you know, they have no interest in women's pain. It's like article after article after article on how women's pain is unacknowledged, is ignored, belittled, diminished. I'm wondering if there's another perspective here. Maybe because it doesn't receive the uh, tremendous concern or, whoa, this guy's friendly. Maybe it just doesn't you know, receive the acknowledgement, the applause, the you know, stop the presses. We must focus on this. Right? But uh, do you notice article after article after article on how women's pain is ignored by doctors? the pandemic. She was prescribed a course of steroids that didn't prove effective. Arscott, who lives with her four children, fell into a deep depression and her weight yo-yoed as the condition waxed and waned. For months, she slept restlessly and felt she was... I'm going to wager that uh, her depression didn't just spring up from these smelling problems. I suspect it was probably there all along. This was just the little extra that tipped it over the edge. Losing her mind. To find support and answers, she joined a Facebook group for parosmia sufferers. Amid posts about non-foul-smelling recipes and questions from newcomers, she noticed one name popping up repeatedly. David Gaskin, a certified registered nurse anesthetist who runs a pain management clinic in Bryan. Gaskin was offering an experimental treatment for parosmia called the stellate ganglion block, administered via a shot into a bundle of sympathetic nerves in the neck. The block has been used for decades to treat chronic pain and is thought to also offer relief for symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. There's now an active trial examining the block's effects on various long COVID-related smell disorders. In social media posts, Gaskin explains that the procedure doesn't help everyone, but his reputation has quickly spread among parosmia sufferers. 
yeah, giving people individualized attention and individualized treatment that in and of itself, aside from any efficacy of the treatment, is going to help people. Like much of my life, I have felt starved for individualized attention, someone to you know, care about me or <laughs> to give the, you know, give the intimation of, of caring about me, that someone would you know, listen to me, right? that someone would you know, hear about my problems and burdens. Sounds like she could use some Alexander techniques as the chat. But I know what it's like to be desperately in need of attention. Desperate, R. Scott booked a flight for her first ever visit to Texas. When R. Scott entered Republic Pain Specialists this past September, the anodyne hallways of the medical center seemed to reek of chemical odors and garbage. Gaskin, wearing Cayman Hyde cowboy boots under his medical scrubs, greeted her. After explaining the procedure, Gaskin injected a numbing agent and a steroid into the stellate ganglion on the right side of her neck. She felt her right eye and the right side of her face droop, a sign the procedure was performed correctly. He repeated the process with a second shot targeting a slightly different spot. This is a nurse, right? This is a registered nurse. This isn't a doctor. This isn't a professor. This isn't a PhD. After waiting for 15 minutes and evaluating her ability to swallow, Gaskin offered R. Scott a Reese's peanut butter cup to see if the shots had been effective. She gingerly took a small bite of the candy and tears flooded her eyes. For the first time in 19 months, the candy smelled normal and she could taste the rich, nutty flavor of... So I find that our problems aren't usually our problems, they're just symptoms of deeper issues. So this woman thinks she's depressed because she's not smelling accurately. I, I suspect that this is a distraction from deeper issues having to do with lack of satisfying connection with other people, right? I think most of our problems from poverty to loneliness to bachelorhood to you know, being obsessed with things that aren't good for us to catastrophizing, to high levels of anxiety. And, you know, I suffer from many of these things, but they all fundamentally come back to a lack of adequate real-life face-to-face connection with other people. Peanut butter and chocolate. Across the room, her mother, who accompanied her, FaceTimed R. Scott's husband so he could watch. Gaskin advised R. Scott to leave the clinic to try foods on her no-go list before coming back at 4.30 p.m. the same day for the second round of injections in the left side of her neck. R. Scott craved a burger and found a nearby joint. Once served, she began deconstructing the sandwich to smell each part and tentatively taste it, starting with a pickle. I don't have much of a sense of smell, but... Aside from that, I find that women are about 10 times more sensitive to smell. Uh, do, you, do you find that? Like, I'm amazed at how much more sensitive they are to, to smell. It tastes like a pickle. Like a real pickle, she called to her mom. Then bake. I also notice that women tend to get much more ecstatic over food. Right? They tend to talk about it more. To celebrate it more, to have more intense emotions about it, to you know, dream about it more, to fantasize about it more. Fried onion, ketchup, and lettuce. She eagerly went back to Gaskin for a second round of injections. 
Later that day, when R. Scott left the clinic, Gaskin thanked her for visiting. It's kind of scary to come all the way from New York to Texas to try something and spend a lot of money, he told her. It's certainly very experimental. There's not a lot of that scientific data yet to help prove what we're doing. You're going off of patient accounts on social media, which is kind of scary. So I congratulate you for having the courage to try something. Gaskin wasn't... So I've had my share of health problems. And sometimes I've gone years without seeking or trying any new solution. I just get tired of trying solutions. So particularly with my chronic fatigue, I would go years without trying anything. Then I'd start trying things again. Then I'd go years without trying anything. And then I'd go trying things again. And I was open to all sorts of wacky things. And uh, nothing really helped till I got the beef organ capsules. Words. There is indeed not much research backing the stellate ganglion blocks used to treat parosmia. While COVID-19 is known to disrupt the olfactory system, medical professionals are still researching exactly what causes parosmia and its sister syndrome, anosmia, the complete loss of smell suffered by many long COVID patients. Many specialists believe COVID damages cells inside the nose, responsible for helping us accurately decode odor. Others say the symptoms of smell loss or distortion are neurological. In the suite of olfactory disorder. So it seems to me, the stronger your relationships with other people, the more bonded you are to a particular community, the more vitality you have and the more you can overcome problems like a loss of smell or distorted smell, right? I just find that all my problems diminish when I'm living in community. All my problems diminish when I'm connecting with friends. And so there's a new documentary on Netflix called Stutz. And it's Joni Hill doing a documentary on his therapist. And his therapist initially tries to get every one of his clients to work on their life force. So do what's necessary for their body, such as exercise and eating right. Do what's necessary for their social life, right, by reconnecting with people, going to lunch with people, uh, spending time face-to-face with people, and then reshaping the way that you relate to yourself. So, yeah, revitalize your life force. And uh, a lot of these other problems diminish. Parosmia is often the most unpleasant but also the one that offers the greatest hope for recovery. That the brain is detecting odor at all is a positive sign. Still, for sufferers facing an onslaught... I remembered after times that I've been particularly sick and just been vomiting and vomiting. Uh, Maybe it clears out my nasal passages or whatever, but for a few hours or even a day or two, I, I regain an acute sense of smell which sort of only reminds me of how weak my sense of smell is most of the time. ...of vile smells at every turn. The experience of suddenly mistrusting every bite you take is disorienting. In Facebook support groups, such as the one R. Scott found, sufferers report spikes in anxiety, extreme weight fluctuation. Some patients have even experienced recurrence of disordered eating after years of recovery, and medical conditions exacerbated by malnourishment. Home remedies abound. Eating a burned orange or piercing your septum have been promoted by non-professionals on the forums. 
but there is no accepted cure for parosmia. Many who... Remember, my father would tell me most things either cure themselves or they can't be cured. First, say their doctors don't understand the severity of the condition. They are prescribed ineffective nasal rinses or referred to psychologists. One parosmia patient, Hannah Higgins, a 30-year-old Instagram and YouTube content creator in Denton in the Dallas suburbs, said she lost 60 pounds but was shrugged off by her doctor. I remember my MD saying it shouldn't last more than a year, she said. And at that point, I was five months postpartum, and I thought to myself, I hope I survive mentally. I hope I can make it until a year. So one can't expect one's doctor, one's primary care physician, to be knowledgeable about a hundred different ailments. Right? If, if your doctor has no solutions, then obviously you go to another doctor, you go to a different treater, you, you try different things. Like I don't get people who just put their health in the hands of their doctor and that's it, right? That's the old-fashioned model that the doctor was the one who had the answers. I think we've moved towards a more collaborative model over the past few decades where patients start taking more and more responsibility for their own health, for their own care, for their own treatment, and uh, people are more likely to seek second and third opinions. That's a good thing. Many patients turn to Google or social media for answers in the face of confusing or unsatisfactory medical advice. Well, sometimes Google and social media is more accurate, more effective than uh, medical advice, right? Medicine has a scientific element, but it's not a science. Right? Medicine is distorted by incentives to prescribe certain medications, for example, to prescribe certain procedures that will bring in lots of income. For example, a sex change, that's going to require a lot of follow-up procedures, make a lot of money from that. The doctors over-prescribe, overdo uverectomies and hysterectomies, They're reducing women's lives, reducing their pleasure in life. But uh, the doctors get to make a lot of money. So it's not like you know, doctor's advice is just inherently superior to what you'll find on Google or social media. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes the elites are right, sometimes the people are right. You know, sometimes your grandmother is right. Sometimes your neighbor is right. I know there are a whole host of areas in my life where I'm prone to addiction, where I'm better off you know, taking advice from a stranger in the park than following my own promptings. Says Mike Mackert, the director of the University of Texas at Austin's Center for Health Communication. Yeah, so a director at the University of Austin Center for Health Communication, he wants people to listen to their doctors. Doesn't want them to go out investigating things on their own. He wants them to you know, listen to the elite, to do what the elite say. That's where Gaskin, a 58-year-old fifth-generation Texan, comes in, offering parosmia sufferers something they haven't found elsewhere, possible treatment and hope that they can get better. Gaskin, who grew up in Buffalo, 70 miles east of Waco, and joined his family trade as a... So many of these battles are not primarily battles over objective truth. They're battles over power, prestige, and money. Right. The more that doctors can medal, medicalize ordinary human suffering, ordinary human sadness, give it a medical definition and diagnosis, and can prescribe medication and procedures for it, 
right, then doctors get more money, power, and prestige. Every profession is trying to increase its prestige, its power, its influence, and its income at the expense of other professions. Right? So professions have licensing procedures, which are not necessarily primarily to protect the public. They have to protect the incomes of the practitioners, to protect the prestige of the practitioners, to protect their legal standing, their legal privileges. So you can't accept what people say. People rarely say what they mean. People rarely mean what they say. So all, almost all of these conflicts, which are fought over lofty matters of good and evil human rights, you know, curing illness, are largely about money, power, prestige, social standing, legal standing. Bye-bye.